I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting, and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of The Right Practice. And I'm Alice Sudlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Right Practice and the StoryGrid certified editor. As always, we're going to start by putting a character to the test. Alice and I look at a character in a book we're reading or film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice? Today, we're talking about Kaya from Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. After that, we're talking to Eric Hansen. Eric is best known as the host for the TV show Epic Trails on Outside TV and Fox Sports. He's also a writer, adventure photographer, and outdoor filmmaker whose work has been featured on the Discovery Channel, NBC Universal, and the Weather Channel. Our conversation is about how adventure can lead to personal growth and self-discovery, but also the habits and strategies you need to make it in incredibly competitive careers like television and writing. And those strategies, by the way, will work in every career too. Eric is someone I really respect for doing the hard grinding work, mostly behind the scenes, who's finally starting to make a name for himself. And now he's at the point where he's really starting to take off. In a few years, he could be a household name. But in this interview, we talk about the hard, very risky work it took to get there. The last part of our show is our character study, where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. Thanks for listening to the Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though, so you have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com slash episode 18. Again, go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 18 to get a free prize related to this episode. All right, Alice, it's time for the character test portion of our show. Today, we're examining Kaya from Where the Crawdads Sing. You've probably heard of Where the Crawdads Sing, even if you haven't read it. It's spent 20 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of Kaya, a little girl growing up in the marshes of North Carolina in 1952. Her father is an abusive alcoholic, and her mother leaves her family when she's six years old, so she basically raises herself alone in this remote marsh cabin. There's also a second story woven throughout the book of a murder investigation in 1969, and the two stories eventually come together at the end. So why did you pick this character to test, Alice? Well, it's been a long time on the bestseller list, for one, so it's been very popular. But also, in the last few weeks, a few of my friends have read it recently, and they loved it so much that they recommended it very highly to me. So I just read the book and thought it'd be fun to talk about. Cool. So let's put Kaya to the test using our four criteria for what makes an interesting character, starting with her goal. Does she have a goal, and what is that goal? Yes, she definitely has a goal. I think that the core of the goal, she kind of has three goals 
together. And I was thinking, which one is the most important? I'm not really sure whether there's one that's most important. They're all kind of intention together. Her goal is to have a family, to have people around her who care for her and who take care of her. Her goal is to have love, to have people who love her and will support her and stay with her. And her goal is self-protection. And when uh, characters, when family members or friends betray her or leave her for whatever reason, whether they intended to or not, she kind of starts to realize that a lot of that self-protection is going to come through her own independence and that the relationships that would allow her to create family and to build these connections of love with people, those sometimes feel more dangerous than isolating and protecting herself. So these three goals are all her goals the whole time, but they're also always intention and she's always kind of weighing them against each other. Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a survival and almost adventure aspect. For sure. Almost a treasure island kind of thing of having to make it on her own. There's very much a survival aspect. I mean, especially from the beginning of the book, which I'll get into some of her challenges. I'll jump straight ahead to our next question. At the beginning of the book, her mother leaves. She watches her mother walk away from their family. Slowly, all of her other siblings leave her as well. And then she's left alone with her abusive father. And eventually, he leaves as well. And so there's this six-year-old, seven-year-old child alone in the marshes. And her first question is, how is she going to survive? How is she going to eat? How is she going to stay alive until tomorrow and find food and cook that food? And so there's a very strong survival element of it. And she becomes very self-reliant. Wow. All right. So those are some of her challenges. Does she have any other challenges that you want to talk about? She does have other challenges as well. Because she learns to take care of herself as a six-year-old child, and because she's so isolated in this very remote marsh cabin, she doesn't ever really learn how to function in society. And On the occasions that she does run up against the larger community down the road, she really struggles with that. She doesn't really know how to operate around other people very much. Truant officers try to come to take her to school, and she doesn't know how to function in school and finds that a very unwelcoming environment. She basically just tries to avoid town as much as possible. She also has learned not to trust people, and not trusting people makes it very difficult to build the kind of relationships that she really deeply desires. Wow. So good characters make decisions. Does Kaya make decisions? And can you point to one of them? For sure. There are a couple of decisions early on in the book that I was thinking about in regards to this question. Of course, all of the big decisions that characters make are often towards the end of the book, but I'm not going to spoil this one since it's still a pretty new read and everyone is reading it and loving it, so you should too. Some early on decisions that she makes are that choice to evade a truant officer. The truant officer comes, brings her to school, and she hates school, so she doesn't want to go back, and then she just evades the truant officer every time that they come to get her again. She hides out into the marsh. She can outwit them because she knows the marsh very well. She doesn't go back to school. And then there's another decision that she makes a few months, maybe a few years later, when someone reaches out to her with a kind of a slow welcome invitation that's a little less scary than a truant officer driving down the road to drag her to school. And 
slowly over time tries to build trust with her. And so there's, there's this is this question of, should she trust this person? Should she trust the possibility of having a friend when she's been alone for so long? And she does choose to trust this person. And that's a big decision for her. So she makes decisions both that further her isolation and independence and self-reliance, and she makes decisions that allow her to build relationships with other people and almost create community. Wow. Sounds great. So last question, is Kaya a character? we can empathize with? I would say yes. I think because it starts the book so early in her childhood, and it's honestly a little bit of a slow start to the book because you see every year of her childhood for the first several years, and there's not a clear sense necessarily of where the story might be going, but you're getting to know this child very well. You're getting to know her family very well. You're getting to know all of her thought processes and struggles as she's trying to figure out how to survive. And that builds a lot of empathy because we're really rooting for this child. We've seen all these people not treating her very well. We have see her hopes for people who will. We see her desire for her mother to come back. She really just wants her mother to come back. And she's waiting for her mother. She's looking for these people. And we, we really have a lot of support for this child. You really want her to do well. And you want her to find, or I want her to find, friends and family and real joy in life. And even when we can understand why other characters are doing the things that they're doing, some of the things that they do are very harmful. Some of the things that they're doing feel harmful to Kaya, but they aren't necessarily inherently harmful. They may be well-intentioned. They may just not be connecting with her in a way that she can comprehend very well. So even when we can understand why other characters are doing what they're doing, we can still see why Kaya responds the way that she does. And I think that's a very empathetic thing to be able to root for this child and also understand her decisions, even when her decisions a lot of the time are not necessarily the decisions that I might make in her circumstances, because I'm very differently socialized than she is, which is to say she's not socialized at all. Sounds heartbreaking and also exciting in some ways. It is. It is. Definitely both. Yeah. So last thing, what can we learn from Kaya? I think the big thing that I take away, especially from the kinds of decisions that I was talking about for this test is that trust is really hard to create and build and maintain. And especially when it's broken and broken repeatedly, it's really hard to regain. I think that if Kaya hadn't had so many formative relationships broken so early for her, then she would find it easier later on to trust more people even when later on she still has some of those relationships are trustworthy and some aren't. And she kind of has to learn to navigate how to determine whether a person is trustworthy or not. But she starts from this place of being default untrusting because she's come from a a lot of broken trust. And what I take from her is that it is hard to regain that trust. And it's understandably so. Like She is just trying not to get hurt again. So what can we learn be careful with relationships and don't break that trust. Yeah. I mean, I I think trust is such a thing we take for granted uh, for the most part. I mean, the people in our lives are fairly stable for most of us. And when it's completely removed, like it sounds like it is for her, it kind of throws you into a whole new situation. What if I couldn't trust anyone in my life? How would my worldview 
what would my worldview be? And I imagine it would be totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Very different approaches to people, to society makes it seem very appealing to live in isolation. Yeah. Well, that is it for our character test segment. Everyone go check out Where the Crawd Died Sing. Let's get into our interview with Eric. All right, Eric Hansen, welcome to the Character Test Show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So right now you're in Flagstaff, Arizona, correct? Yes. One of the few times I'm actually in my home in Flagstaff. I'm here in Flagstaff now. We were just talking before we started that you really only spend like six months of the year at your home uh, because you're traveling all over the world right now, filming and writing so this is a rare moment for you. This for us. drink it in, guys. This is this is me here <laughs> for the, the few times that it happens. Yeah, I, I go in these big travel waves for work and also some for personal travel as well. So, so it's all it's always sweet for me to to be home, but it feels sweeter because I get to do a lot of really amazing travel yeah. experiences that I really value. Yeah. Well, we'll talk a lot more about those travel experiences. But you grew up in Arizona right? What was it like growing up there? And was it in Flagstaff? I didn't grow up in Flagstaff. I grew up in Phoenix. My family moved to Phoenix from Denver, Colorado when I was about four years old. And that provided kind of like the the basis for me to be in the Southwest. My dad, you know, kind of brought me up teaching me how to camp and things like that. That really established a lot of the things that I grew to to love. But that was down in Phoenix. And I was eager as I uh, got closer to adulthood to get out of there. So then I came up to Flagstaff for college and I spent four years here for college and then left post-graduation and traveled and worked in different places around the the U.S. and the world and then have had a, a longing to come back to Flagstaff. And this place has a way of bringing people back here. So I have a good community of people, a good group of friends. And I've been here for about four years now, again. Okay. So growing up in Phoenix, what was it like going camping? Would you drive up to the mountains or would you go backpacking? Like my kind of picture of camping, because I my sister lives in Tucson and I've gone camping at maybe Zion. It, what's close there? Well, Zion is Southern Utah, which you not, can get not to Zion. Tucson, but... Yeah, it was like, uh, maybe begins with a T. It doesn't really matter. But I, I was camping there one time, and it's just car camping. And it was just unbearably hot. And it, like 105. Sounds like Tucson. I, yeah, it was, it was not my favorite experience. So for you, like, what was great about camping? And what kind of memories do you have from that? I have a memory of being, I think I was turning eight years old. And my parents asked me, like, what do you want to do for your birthday? You can do anything you want. And uh, my choice was to go camping out in the White Mountains. So instead of doing like uh, theme parks or going to Disneyland or something like that, I was just, let's go camping. And the great thing about Arizona is that even though places like Tucson and Phoenix that have these kind of the high population places, if you drive even an hour uh, from really anywhere in Arizona, you're going to get to a completely different zone. So at that time from Phoenix, we went east and then there's the the White Mountains over there and there's some really spectacular high mountains. I mean, most people don't think of Arizona as having 
big mountains, but you can get up around 7,000 feet pretty easily and have cool temperatures, even, you know, fall colors, changing aspens, snow, you can go skiing, those types of things. So it's all, it's all here. And so those were the places that we would typically explore. I remember as a kid, like exploring the White Mountains, the Mogollon Rim, Flagstaff, the Grand Canyon, and then getting further up into Utah and, and all of Colorado as well. And that really set the table for me to discover this love that I have for, for the outdoors. So Phoenix proper is not necessarily the greatest because, as you said, it's often very hot. But what you can get to with a relatively easy amount of effort is pretty stunning. Wow. So what is it about travel that you love? Because you, you know, since I've known you, you've always loved travel and not just backpacking, but, you know, exploring countries as well. I mean, you traveled for a year as an early 20-something. You even wrote a book about that experience. I tried to find it online. I don't know if it's still available. Um, but, you know, that's been an important part of your experience. So, what is it about travel that you really love? Is it the sense of adventure or is it, you know, connecting with different people and different cultures? It is all of those things. I think that for me, it's, it's how it expands you as a person and then opens you up to experiences and growth that you really can't get. I haven't found a substitute for how you can get those types of growth experiences as a person, as an individual. And it, then it allows you to meet other people, become more aware of other cultures, other worldviews, other ways of thinking and approaching the world that I think are really, really important. I had my first big travel trip as a 17-year-old. I went and spent my summer between high school, uh, I think it was my sophomore year, between my sophomore and junior year of high school. If I've gotten the timing right, I'm not 100% sure. But I went and spent the summer in Spain and did work at a, at a camp where I was basically just like a maintenance guy. So I was like using chainsaws and cleaning toilets and things like that not necessarily in the same job specifically. Um, <laughs> that would be a very interesting technique of, of cleaning clearing, clearing a toilet. <laughs> yeah. But that was like the first thing where I was like, oh, I'm getting to experience a, like a European way of life. And that was very different than an American way, way of life. That was kind of the first time that I was like, oh, there's another option. There's, there's you know, having like these slow, lazy afternoon lunches and siestas and things that were just different. And that kind of set the table for me to be like, oh, I really appreciate this. I want to start investing my time and money in, into travel. And then you mentioned after as a young 22-year-old, I spent and did, did a thing called the World Race and uh, traveled for a year. And it was doing work in different countries and pretty much a month at a time. Some of your readers or listeners might be aware of this, I'm not sure. But that was a really profound experience for me and totally derailed my life in the best way possible. I think. Mm. What do you mean? And took me down a more non-traditional path. Being working amongst some of the more poor communities in the world really exposed me to a different way of approaching life, especially as as an American who came from a lot of pretty much wealth and privilege to experience that you can find a lot of joy and satisfaction that aren't rooted in, in money 
was a profound shift for me in how I chose to pursue life. So instead of taking a more traditional job, I had gotten a degree, a college degree in, in finance and business. And, and so instead of taking my job for, at an investment firm, I decided that I wanted to do something different. Basically, have since then pursued various means of, of making money through writing, through photography, through film, and, uh, and now I have a career in television. That was all kind of spurred by that moment to kind of break from the traditional path. Yeah, kind of a, an ability to be entrepreneurial because you can kind of take those risks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, I, I, like you, traveled the world for a year and realized from that experience just how little I actually needed, like how, how I could get away with having a very sparse lifestyle. And that allowed me to take a lot of risks, like becoming a writer that I might not have been able to if I hadn't have been able to have that experience. So, you know, for you, I mean, I can remember this one moment when we were in Romania where we were living off of like $2 a day in as our food budget and, you know, things were a little dicey. Like I was pretty hungry that month and yeah, it kind of taught me so much about who I am and what I could do. So now for you, like what kind of memorable adventures do you remember from that experience that were kind of life-changing and life-growing for you? Uh, one that stands out to me was being in, in Mozambique. And there was, I happened to be in Mozambique. This was back in, I think, 2007. And um, there was a major flood that happened in, in Mozambique about two or three months before I was there. And one of the things that had happened was the government was basically forced with the decision to release this. There was major flooding, and then they had to release this dam in order to prevent a cataclysmic dam failure that would have been truly devastating for the country. So they released all this water, but they, by doing so, they displaced a, a large number of, of the people that lived in Mozambique. And for about a month, if I, without knowing all the political things that were happening at the time, my experience of it was that for about a month, there was government support for the refugees, the displaced people. And then after about a month, then the people were kind of like left on their own. They stopped giving aid and things like that. So by the time that I arrived, there were people in these refugee camps, displaced people that hadn't had any sort of like food or assistance for a long time. So for about a month, people were in, in true survival mode. And I was with a group of people that there was one guy who, who was a missionary there and he had found a way to buy about 50 tons worth of food and we were going to go drive our truck around and deliver it to these different camps. And my experience with that was really profound because I witnessed for the first time like this devastating level of, of poverty. But within that, I saw that people were still experiencing joy, kindness, being charitable to each other, even within, you know, basically on the brink of starvation, there was still that there. And that was, it was so humbling for me coming from where I've come from growing up. And people are familiar with like Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a place with a lot of money, 
a lot of means, a lot of, a lot of privilege. And that was so like, it shook me so much to my core. That was one of the moments that definitely like altered forever how I'll approach life. And what you were mentioning is like learning how to live off of like a couple of bucks a day and stuff like that. Being now doing like guide work and being a backpacker and having a lot of extensive experience in the wilderness, that sort of thing was always like, I know that I can be okay. And that has, it's also freed me up in my career path, I think, because a handful of years ago when I decided to go full-time freelance, I always had this in the back pocket. It's like, well, I can just go live in the forest. And <laughs> like, if things get really bad, I know how to just like, basically like set up a tent in the forest and survive. Luckily it hasn't come to that, but it was the, it was the thing that I kind of had where it, it allowed me to be in a position, I think where I could take kind of the, the personal and professional risk because I had had these experiences was like, well, I've seen like living on less is okay. And I've learned how to, to do it. And I've been exposed to some of that, that, now, not necessarily having a mortgage and a beautiful home is not, that's okay. There, there's other things in the world um, that are, yeah, basically I was just freed up because it, it was okay. Yeah. So you got a divorce in your late 20s. You actually married a woman that you met while you were traveling. Three years later, were divorced. And I imagine like most divorces, it was fairly devastating for your sense of purpose and identity. But then you moved back to Arizona and you started working in wilderness education and sort of reinvented your life. Can you talk about how that process went for you, how it felt for you? Yeah, it was simultaneously devastating and um, in a way, kind of the best thing, one of the best things that's ever happened uh, actually. So I got, got married uh, as, as a, well, at the time, I think I was 25. I met, met my ex-wife at, when I was 22 or 23. I think that I was in a place where I was just kind of doing, following some of the, oh, you're supposed to, you're supposed to get married. You're supposed to kind of do these, tick off these, these things in life. And I, at the time, I didn't quite realize how much I was, I think not necessarily making independent decisions. I hadn't necessarily learned how to do that yet. And I spent, spent three years being married and it never quite felt right, I suppose. And the divorce process was, was actually fairly amicable uh, between me and my ex-wife. But then, but the transition, it was, it was definitely like a low point in my life as one can imagine. But I had some friends around me and they were like, you need to go take this job in, in wilderness therapy out in Utah. It would be the best thing for you. And it truly was like the best situation I could have ever asked for. It was getting dropped into the, the like literally the perfect environment. It was a therapeutic environment. It was the outdoors. It was all these things that like really resonated with me. I was around these people who for, I was there for three years who for, for years were every, you were kind of analyzing everything. You were in a, it was a positive environment. People were caring about you. And my job was literally to 
bring other people, these young uh, adults, teenagers and young adults through, basically they'd been kind of sent to wilderness because they were either abusing drugs and, and alcohol or could have been violent types of things. Like basically people who had not done very well in life and were being sent to this. But so they were there for therapy and I was in the role as kind of like a therapist guide. But all of that actually meant that I was getting like three years of free therapy. And it was, it turned out to be such a life-giving thing for me, a thing that really, it exposed a lot of, a, a lot within me that kind of, I realized who I was, why I was making the decisions I was as a young 20-year-old and 25-year-old. And it freed me up a lot. And it also taught me how to be happy with myself. And I think that I realized that I was kind of looking for, for satisfaction, looking for somebody to affirm me. And that's kind of part of why I think I got married in the first place. And so I think I was able to be free, freed up from a lot of those types of things. So I was happy. Basically, I learned how to be happy on my own, by myself. And so I spent like three years basically being a single guy just in the, in the wilderness and, uh, and being happy. And that kind of set the table for a lot of the things that were, were able to, to come later. So uh, can pursuing, you talk yeah. for a second about how that actually happened? Like, were you just like sitting on the edge of a mountain one day looking at the vista thinking, I can be happy just being me. I don't need... Was there like this moment of revelation or were these kind of things that you slowly learned one backpacking trip at a time? Like, how does that actually look? Yeah. So, it was it was both. It was definitely a cumulative so a set of like uh, experiences and just kind of a, a general, more hazy experience. But there was also the kind of like aha type of moment. When did that happen? It happened while I was working. So I was in the field doing wilderness therapy with, with a group. And I realized that I was using kind of strange language. So it's, I was talking about, oh, I was in a relationship that that ended. And I, so I, I was, I hadn't been aware that I was using very vague language to describe the fact that I'd been married and divorced. And I don't even think somebody else pointed it out to me, but I had this thought of like, why am I so desperately avoiding using this word divorce? And it was because I realized that I had a huge sense of shame about it. And I had kind of subconsciously just been holding on to this bundle of, of shame that I was a guy in my 20s and felt like there shouldn't be anything wrong with me, but I was divorced. And so somehow there was like this thing that was kind of wrong with me, if you will. And that just recognizing that I was holding on, I, it was at the, up until that point, I didn't know that I had a shame about this. Then that was where I recognized that it's like, oh, this is how I'm even viewing myself. This is how I'm thinking about it. It had been a year. I'd been a year since I'd been divorced and been a year working in wilderness therapy. And I was pretending like it had never been a part of my story. And from that point on, I made a, a specific point to 
normalize this experience for myself because even what we were talking about with like clients, people who were maybe abusing heroin or had gone through a really traumatic experience in life that had set them back, maybe they'd suffered abuse or sexual abuse or violent abuse, was teaching them to not have to, not freeing them from this kind of self-shame cycles. And I was realizing that I was doing the same thing for, for myself. And so one of the things that I point that I decided that I wanted to do was any time, like, like right now, like any time that somebody wanted to ask me a question, I would just say, yeah, let's talk about it. And so rather than viewing this point of what had been a point of a huge amount of pain and shame in my life, this fact that I had kind of failed, it was what, how I had, had viewed it and, and got a divorce was just being like, yep, that's, that's now just part of my story. It's not something I need to be embarrassed of. It's not something I need to pretend like it doesn't exist. It's an element of my story. And if I can normalize it for myself, then I can actually come to, uh, um, come to grips with it. I can normalize it for myself. And I can then actually like really analyze it and move on in a healthy way rather than just kind of bury it and hope that maybe next time will be better or something like that. So that there, there was an aha moment, but it was, I think I was like sitting around a campfire talking about these things kind of like in a cheesy sort of way. And then nobody pointed it out, but I just had this like, you realize what am I doing with myself? Like, why am I using a strange language to pretend like, I don't know, pretend like this was never something that happened. So do you still feel shame about being divorced? Nope. No, I don't. I think part of an element that was there was kind of like rooted in some of the uh, faith-based upbringing that I was uh, brought up with being a, a Christian and kind of, this was, it was kind of a taboo topic. And now it doesn't seem to be like, I hope that other people can also feel like if you've gone through a point of pain, if you've gone through a failed relationship, a quote unquote failed relationship, that doesn't mean that you are now somehow damaged or incapable of love or being loved or those types of things. So, and in a lot of ways, that was the kind of the, the low point that everything from there has been this almost uncanny, remarkable, like almost launch for the rest of my life. I do not have shame about it anymore. I do not wish that it never happened. I'm actually really thankful that it happened. I think it opened me up in a lot of really beautiful ways that I needed to go through and learn about myself and learn how to approach life in a much healthier way. This episode is brought to you by The Right Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award-winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award-winning writer, you should too. The Write Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book, novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing. If you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in. And the Right Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for the Right Practice Pro at therightpractice.com slash join. Mm -hmm. 
So now you're the host of a TV series, Epic Trails. Uh, your film work has been featured on the Discovery Channel, Universal NBC, the Weather Channel. Can you talk about how you went from a guy doing backpack tours for troubled kids and adults to where you are now? Yeah. So as I, as I was a guide, it had kind of always been this thing that I'd wanted to be a writer, a photographer, and later learned that I wanted to also work in film. And I didn't know that I wanted to work in television, but just doing like being around like creative film, basically be a creative person that worked in that sort of capacity. So I was a guide and I felt like I was now had this blank slate with my life coming out of being divorced. It was like, okay, I had been making decisions for kind of other people for, for a long time. And now I felt like I could pursue whatever, basically whatever the hell I want. And I decided that that was like, I'm going to try my best to work in media. I want to be a writer. I want to be a photographer. And the more I did photography, the more I started dabbling in film and started learning, okay, I want to include that in, in that too. And so I had this really odd job where I was in wilderness therapy. So I would work for eight days at a time and then I would have six days off. So that was kind of like this non-traditional work thing that allowed, it put me in a position to where I could, instead of being in a nine to five type job and just having weekends, I had every other week, I had a full week to go do things that most people can't go do. I was also in a place in the world right outside Zion National Park that I had this amazing landscape at, at my doorstep. So I pretty much spent almost all of my off shifts in Zion National Park and working to like document my adventures in this place. I started working on a documentary about uh, climbing and canyoneering in Zion National Park. And that was kind of like this thing that started really growing. I didn't know it at the time, but it started growing this passion for that. I started growing my skills. I started becoming a much better photographer. I started becoming a much better videographer and also a writer. And I was able to start actually the, the main turning point was was i saw a tweet from backpacker magazine where they were looking for gear testers for their for their magazine and in order to apply you had to make a video and so i was like oh this is all the things that are that that, that i'm passionate about i have the perfect job to be a gear tester for a magazine i have video experience now i can i can put a bunch of investment of my time and creativity into this. And so I put, I, I kind of gathered some friends and we, we worked together on making this creative video and it ended up, I submitted it to backpacker. They ended up choosing it. I got the gig. They liked the video so much that they put it on their website of being like, Hey, look at our new gear tester. And he made this cool video. Wow. And that video alone opened up a lot of doors. But when they put that video on their website, this other guy who's an executive producer at a TV company happened to be researching for the show that he was developing, came across my video and liked it and basically reached out to me, called me out of the blue, said, hey, my name's Ken Whiting. I'm producing this show called Epic Trails and I'm looking for a host and I think you might be the guy. And he's like, would you be interested in that? I'm like, yes, I think I am interested. Obviously. <laughs> so that was a huge like that was like the kind of like getting discovered type of moment 
that was really, really important. But also what I think sometimes can get lost in the story is that that from that phone call, there was about a three to four year gap between like, Hey, would you be interested in this to actually like, Oh, here's a ticket. We're going to Jordan. We're making the pilot episode. Uh, there was a big amount of, a, a lot of work that went into developing the show, developing the series, putting into the things in place with uh, TV agreements, network agreements, sponsors, fundraising. And so the rest of that time, the other thing that was happening was that I was pursuing work as a freelancer and was working as a journalist, was trying to sell like magazine stories was working with in photo teams with marketing companies and trying to like do those sort of things. So I was able to, after three years of working wilderness therapy, I was able to transition away. I had launched this documentary and that I ended up making some money off of it that allowed me to basically like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to launch myself into this career of freelancing that the TV was this thing that I was always hoping would work out, but was really unsure if it would actually work out. And I just had to keep working towards this goal. And eventually it, it actually did come into play. And that's what the job I've been working on now for the last three years. And it's been amazing. But it was, it was a, a lot of things happening simultaneously. Well, I remember talking to you in the middle of this. I didn't realize that like this opportunity with Epic Trails came right kind of after this, because I remember a lot of years where you're doing gear reviews and really excited about it, but I've worked in journalism and in the freelancing world, and those jobs are fun and don't pay very well. <laughs> <laughs> so it took a lot of time to build up, you know, yeah. your business and, and that experience. You know, is that hard? Kind of, I imagine there were a lot of pitches and a lot of like, building relationships and a lot of kind of lean years while you were doing that, that sound kind of romantic, but were a little bit of a struggle. Yeah. There were two extremely lean years that were, that were very difficult, but I was basically able to quit my job in wilderness therapy. I decided that part of my launch would be, I want to do something that's, I don't want to just wait for jobs to come to me. I want to try to be a little bit more proactive. So I, I booked a one-way ticket to Ecuador and I just traveled South America, North to South as kind of a way to try to do something interesting that could help get work and accumulate good photography, might set myself apart in some sort of way. But yeah, for, for two years I was working doing, selling like magazine stories, doing gear reviews, kind of getting my hands on any little story I could, being paid hundred dollars a time, $200 a time. Occasionally, maybe I'd get a big gig and make 2000 bucks. But yeah, when you look at like what you're making for a year, it was well below poverty <laughs> type of income. But that was the type of thing that kind of going backwards, I was a single guy. I had learned to live really lean. And that was when I was at a point where thinking like, well, if I can no longer afford to pay rent, well, I'll just move into my tent in the forest and I'll, somehow, <laughs> I'll keep, keep going. I'll keep doing whatever it is that I have to do to, to stay in this line of work. And I do remember thinking about two years in, it was like the TV show hadn't become official yet. It was still something that we were all working on and pitching and trying to make happen. 
but it wasn't quite there yet. And just being like, man, I don't know how long I can do this, but at the same time, I love that I am pursuing this. I'm really passionate about it. And I just got to, just got to keep going. And luckily the, the lean years had, had an end and, and I was able to, to make it through, but they were very rewarding in a lot of ways. Financially, they were not rewarding, <laughs> but in a lot of experiential type things, they were very rewarding. Right. Yeah. I think that period of kind of earning your chops and I experienced that as well, you know, where I made like $14,000 one year in writing and, and that was a great, I mean, that was a great year for me and that was working pretty hard to make that $14,000. And now I'm in a place where, you know, things are much more stable, but you know, looking back at those years, there were a lot of really sweet things that I think about, about that phase. And, and it's almost like it, I don't quite look back at it with nostalgia, but there was a level of focus and excitement in that period that I miss. And I don't always have access to anymore because things are a little bit easier. Um, do you look back at those years with a similar amount of nostalgia or, or kind of a, a bittersweet sense with that? Well, I loved what I was doing then. And it was very, I think it was very important for me professionally to go through that, to go and have, have things be, be hard. And, and I think that anybody who kind of finds their way in, in, the, in the profession probably has similar experiences where you probably don't just try one thing and have it immediately succeed. And, and then you don't really have to try very hard ever again. There's kind of a, a you, you're sharpening your skills, you're learning, you're growing, you're developing relationships. And I think back upon those times fondly, but I do not wish for them to. <laughs> you don't want to go back there. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't. The, the funny thing is, is that I still feel like my lifestyle is still relatively similar. I just can enjoy a little bit more of like some of the stability and, and lack of financial stress that, that comes with like scratching my head, looking at my, uh, you know, income and just being like, oh, oh boy, how am I paying rent this, this month? Which wood am I going to sleep in tonight? Yeah. Which forest? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I want to ask you, you've sort of made it, right? You are, you have a successful job. You are not worried about living in the woods. You are in a house <laughs> that you bought. Yeah. And you have a mortgage, I'm assuming. I do. And you are living a more traditional life, maybe not a traditional life. But I wonder how like you kind of line up and, and think about you were kind of moving into this non-traditional world in your 20s and now you're in a more traditional phase. How do you feel about being more traditional? Like, is there a tension there or are you just totally cool with it? You've made your money and you're, you're good. It's an interesting question. I don't feel like I'm, despite, I think the only thing that's traditional right now is that I have a house. I think that most of the other things are still relatively non-traditional. I'm barely here. <laughs> I, I travel a lot. I'm still single. I think that there's a lot of elements of non-traditional there. I mean, just the fact that I work, my job is to travel the world and document it for television, basically. I guess there, there's, you're right, there are elements of it moving more towards traditional, but I, 
I also think I probably am not going to be doing a nine to five anytime too soon. If there's anything wrong with that, but it just, it still feels like I'm kind of like on this entrepreneurial path. The TV show is its own business kind of, kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm not ready for your question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. So if you were from this vantage point of the guy who is now hosting a TV show and living and traveling the world for work and living in the house with a mortgage, what advice would you give to that person who is just starting out? Well, I think that some advice that I have, have given in the past to other, to people who've like been trying to be like, Oh, I want to work in, I want to be a photographer. I want to be a travel writer or, or something like that is I think that you have to be pretty intentional with going and doing interesting things. I think a lot of people say like, Oh, I'm a good photographer. Why aren't people hiring me? And I think that, or for writing, why aren't people just like seeking me out? And there is this period where for a long time, you're, you're the one knocking on doors and pitching yourself and putting yourself out there. And it really helps if you're doing interesting things. And if you're doing what everyone else is doing, it's probably going to be difficult to look like you're doing really interesting things. So doing things that, are, that most people aren't doing is, is probably a good way to do that. For me, when I was launching, I was like, okay, I'm going to go travel South America by myself and go trek the Andes. And that was really integral for helping me set myself apart so that I could get some of these get ma magazine pitches in, get photos sold, those sorts of things. And it wasn't just I'm sitting in my, in my house in suburbia somewhere being like, I'm a great photographer. Somebody please hire me. You kind of have to take the first step and go do something uh, that's going to be like, oh, what they're, what they're doing is, is different. It sets you apart. Yeah, Seth, Seth Godin says, you know, choose yourself. Give yourself permission, in other words. And it sounds like what you're saying is similar to that. You have to take the initiative to make your dreams happen on your own sweat and dime a lot of times. And, you know, things can come after that, but you have to choose yourself and not wait around to be picked. Is that true? I think you have to do a lot of things on spec, which sucks. <laughs> you have to kind of pay for it yourself and then hope that you can sell it later. And the, I think the other thing is, is like, and anybody, you've been doing this, how, I don't know how many years in you are now. I think a lot of people feel like they can do it for one year, six months, one year, maybe two years. There's not that many people that just can do it for six months and then all of a sudden they just have enough things in the pipeline to where, yeah, work is good and they don't have to worry anymore. Even eight years in or so, you're still having to like, there's an element of hustle and it will probably always be that. I still feel like I'm having to, to hustle, even though I have a TV show, there's still that element where I'm feel like I'm doing a dozen things with the show to help make it happen, to help promote it, to help to go film, to go write the scripts, to, you know, to talk with sponsors, to keep those relationships going. There's and there's still other things that aren't just that, but writing on my own, writing on the, all these kind of things that all kind of play together, that there's an element of hustle there. And I think that people feel like if they try for a short period of time, then they've, that's after that, then they're kind of entitled to 
somebody handing them work, handing them money, handing them that. And, and I think that that's just not the reality. And there is an element of just, I think our mutual friend, Jeff Goins has said, you know, you just not quoting, but just, just that element of, if you just keep going, the more time that you continue to put in, the more other people will tend to, to fall away. And by sticking with it for, for years at a time, you tend to find yourself with, with less competition. Yeah, you have to outlast them. Kind of been like, well, I gave that a shot. So it didn't work out. So now I'm, now I'm just doing the other job. I, that was my backup plan. Yeah. All right, last question. Who is your favorite character from a book or a film? The first person that comes to mind would be Faramir from Lord of the Rings. Whoa. He's somebody that I have always resonated with, and more so the character in the book and less so the movie, because even though he's a great character in the movie, some of what made him Faramir was, was kind of left, left him out. So remind us of who that character is, because probably people can think of like Sam and Bilbo, but Faramir... Yes. He rode horses, right? Yeah, yeah. He was a horse guy. So he was from the realm of Gondor. He was the brother of Boromir, who Boromir got all of the fame and attention and love from the father. And I'm not saying that my dad didn't love me. I'm just saying, like, there was, like, this <laughs> other character that was, he was the, the Boromir was the, the captain of Gondor and the protector. And then Faramir was kind of the younger brother. I, I am the younger brother. And he was kind of this person that was not very prominent, didn't get the the attention and the fame that, that Boromir did. But in a lot of ways, Faramir was the true unsung hero of the story. He was not tempted by the ring. He is was able to help Frodo and Sam on their journey. And he did a lot of things kind of in the background that was kind of this more heroic thing that was basically like the unsung hero of the story so that especially from the books less so from the movie but still both i've always resonated with him and been like i want to be honorable an honorable and good man like faramir yeah that's great well eric this has been super fun thank you so much for joining us thank you joe i appreciate you having me here yeah and everyone can check out epic trails where can people find epic trails your show so if you still have cable television, you can watch the show on Fox Sports and outside TV. So it airs on both networks. Each region within Fox Sports has different listings, so you just might have to figure, figure that out on your own. But also, you can watch our content for free on YouTube as well. So if you're like most younger people and you just watch things online, hey, we've got it for you. So you can go over to Backpacking TV. That was the original YouTube channel that started all of this. And there is everything on there. So Epic Trails is over on Backpacking TV. Go look it up and you can watch all of our episodes from season one and two for free. And season three we're in production of now and that'll be coming soon. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Eric. Thank you, We'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. All right, let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Eric's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. All right, Alice, what was your takeaway? 
The piece that really resonated with me in this interview was when he was talking about his divorce and especially how a year later he realized that he was holding on to a lot of shame, that that shame was shifting the ways that he was talking about the divorce. It was shifting the ways that he was thinking about it and that it was really a burden that was holding him back and how he decided to approach that shame. I really loved hearing him talk about how he decided to normalize it for himself. He decided that it is a real and valid part of his story. It's also just a part of his story. It's it's not the end of his story. It is just a piece. And he does not have to carry that shame anymore. So when people asked him about it, he decided he was going to just talk about it openly and normalize it such that it didn't feel like the big hidden thing he wasn't addressing. Uh, And then that allowed him to analyze it and move forward from it in a healthy way. I really appreciated hearing him talk about how he overcame that shame. Hmm. Yeah, I think being honest with people and vulnerable with people is so important for building relationships. And I can only imagine like if you were facing someone and and they were being vague about and you could kind of maybe even tell that they were being kind of vague about maybe serious situation in their lives would just or even if you couldn't tell, you know, it would make it hard for you to create a real connection with them. And I think it's so powerful that he was able to kind of come to that place of honesty so that he could build really authentic relationships with other people. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really powerful. And I think it's not easy either. I mean, I think that was work that he had to do to overcome that shame. For sure. So my takeaway was, you know, what are you willing to risk to accomplish your career goals? Like Eric had this season where he had quit his job and he was working as a freelance writer. He hadn't started hosting this TV show yet. He was doing some kind of freelance film work, some freelance writing work, and it wasn't terrible. He was making some money at that, but it wasn't great. And there was this very real sense that like he could be homeless, he could be living in the forest if, you know, A couple things didn't go better. Which also, to be clear, he'd be totally fine with because he loves camping. You know, just go pitch a tent somewhere. He'd be fine. (laughs) He would have been totally fine. But that's the thing. Like, you know, he was able to do that because he had built in this level of toughness and grit and flexibility into his life. And a lot of us have dreams for our lives. I certainly had a dream to become a writer. And if I hadn't learned how kind of that same level of toughness and grit. You know, I never had to worry about going and living in the forest, but I did, you know, have some very lean years. And if I I hadn't built kind of that level of toughness into myself, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be here right now. And so I guess for you, like, what are you willing to risk to accomplish your goals? Would you be willing to make less than the poverty line for a year if it meant eventually being able to make your current income doing your dream job. I think about Joanna Penn, who quit her job and took a big pay cut to be a writer. And we talked to her earlier and Eric and me too. And I think sometimes to accomplish your goals, you have to be willing to do that. Yeah. And at the same time, I loved how he talked about when he was in this gap 
this was the time that he took the initiative initiative to go do interesting things. Like he was not going to wait for someone to sponsor those things. This gap was a time below the poverty line when he was also adding in the risk of going out and venture, adventuring himself and taking photographs to see where they took him. Totally. So he was investing in his own career as he was below the poverty line yeah. and making it all happen, which is a lot and kind of hard and and probably a risk most of us would be unwilling to make. But, you know, it led to this now kind of flourishing life that he's built for himself. Yeah, it's really exciting and really cool to see what he was willing to risk. Yeah. So our character test challenge for you today, what is something that you feel shame about admitting to other people or even something you feel a little bit embarrassed about. So identify what that thing is. And then I just want you to write it out. And maybe you just say, I am divorced, as Eric said, whatever that thing is, just write it out. And let us know how that goes. What is that experience like? And just kind of feel your feelings in that place. Do you have an aversion to just kind of spelling it out like that? Or is it kind of liberating? And let us know how it goes. Send us an email to charactertestshow at gmail.com to let us know how it went for you. And that's it. That's our show. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music. Don't forget to go to charactertestshow.com slash episode 18 for your free prize. And we have a new review, Alice. This one is from Bub Bub Farkle. Great screen name. Do you want to read it? Yes, it says, this long-form podcast has helped me think more deeply about how to understand others and be an encouragement as circumstances call for being present, being a challenger, or some totally unexpected but important response. While the tone and pacing of these podcasts is peaceful and contemplative, each one inspires me to think more deeply. That is why I keep listening. And I love that. I'm so glad to be described as peaceful and contemplative. <laughs> well, have a good week, everyone. We have one last favorite ask. Please leave a review like Bub Bub Farkle. You can say whatever you want. You can call us peaceful and contemplative. You could mention me and maybe I'll pick your review. Yeah. <laughs> so write your review. It can be as short as one sentence and click submit. It'll take you 30 seconds to leave a review, but it'll be a huge help. Thanks so much and have a great week, everyone.